Good afternoon to UK Column listeners. I had a telephone conversation earlier this morning with Jackie DeVoy, and we were talking about the uh, tragic subject of deaths in care homes. And as always happens, we got into that conversation and we started to cover more and more material. And eventually I said to Jackie, Jackie, I think we should stop and let's start again and record our conversation. So for the audience today, Jackie's just joined me. We're going to uh, get back into our chat for about an hour and uh, we're going to record it so that we can share it with uh, UK Column and a wider audience. Jackie, thank you very much for coming back to me. I'm sorry to have interrupted your morning. No, thank you very much for having me on, on the show again, uh, albeit audio. That's fine by me. I've been doing a little bit more audio over the uh, past few weeks and, and got a very good response from people. A lot of stuff on video these days, but there are also people who say, well, I like audio because I can be out walking or I could have it on in the car. <laughs> so I'm planning to do a bit more audio than I was doing before. And uh, we we know that we get a good response from it, so I I think it's still a very good, a very good medium. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, while we were waiting to connect up again, I I went and visited your Twitter account. I'm sorry, I'm going to be old fashioned and stick with <laughs> Twitter. And uh, a few hours ago, you'd put out a a tweet, and let me just read that for the audience because I think this is a very good place to start the discussion. You said in three months in 2020, 66,000 care home residents died, 30% from COVID allegedly. If that's the case, what did the other 44,000 die from? And then uh, you went on to say if your loved one died between March the 2nd and June the 12th, 2020, what did they die of? And was their sudden, what, sorry, was their death sudden, unexpected? or untimely so that that's a pretty heavy um email um jackie yeah yeah that old article is uh from the nursing times if i remember correctly I, I don't have it in front of me at the moment and um yeah they're basically uh stating that in those uh three short months in 2020 that's 66 so that strange number again that the six is 66,000 um people died in care homes um and that's uh, that 30% of those were allegedly uh, COVID deaths. Now, uh, we we know over the last few years that a lot of those those COVID deaths weren't COVID deaths at all. They were people dying with the thing that that was called COVID, or, or um, people dying with it who've had a, a positive test, even uh, posthumously sometimes, um, and also people dying in accidents dying from cancer, dying of heart attacks, still being put down as COVID. So a tiny, tiny proportion of, of that number is is actually um, um, people dying with this, um, this uh, disease uh, that they named COVID. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, it's a strange article to put out because it makes me uh, um, immediately think, well, it'll make any reader immediately think, well, well that's 30%. What did the other 70% die of? So um, from my research, as, as a lot of your uh, listeners and viewers will know, um, I believe that a lot of those, uh, that 70%, that those 44,000 people in those, just in those three months were uh, euthanized in, in care homes. And um, I can back this up with, uh, after speaking to hundreds and hundreds of people, who've got in touch with me saying pretty much the same thing. And a lot of these um, these uh, very uh, orchestrated deaths um, were actually, um, did happen in 2020 and, and, and in 2021, there were a lot as well. And they're still happening now. I mean, these euthanasia deaths are still happening. I've, I've got my support group. There's 133 members in it now. They all have very horrible, shocking, but similar stories. Um, saying that their loved ones were killed um, in hospitals and care homes. And and it's still happening. I think the most recent uh, member of the group uh, who joined was, uh, I think her father was killed about 10 days ago, I think. Um, so people, you know, I'm, I'm getting two or three people 
joining a week at the moment. So so it's definitely still going on. But yeah, I think people should be asking, you know, what was the the other seventy percent in that particular story? And that is just like like I said, over a period of three months, right at the start. Yes, and um, Jackie, earlier on, you said to me that um, it, it was quite striking the number of people who were now, um, re well, responding to you, but also in in general conversations, people are talking about having lost relatives on on Twitter. I, uh, when I get a new member to the group, with their permission, if they want me to, I'll do a, a, a tweet about um, uh, what's happened to them, maybe put a photo up if they're happy for me to do that. So over the, the during this week, I've put up two um, tweets from, from um, about new members. And um, one, I just posted a photo of an elderly lady sat in a, a wheelchair looking terribly um, distraught and sad while her daughter is watching her through a, a glass door. I think that's what the, the angle of the photo is. And if, if, if you go to Twitter, you can see that. Uh, last time I looked last night, that had about 700,000 views, I think, and hundreds and hundreds of comments. And a lot of these comments are saying now, you know, they're, they're telling their own stories. They're saying, you know, this is awful, uh, and, but it's it's reminded me of what happened to my mother, father, brother, sister, cousin, uncle, you know, so... Um, more and more people are coming forward. Every time I put up a tweet like that, uh, more and more people are coming forward with their own stories. It's like triggering uh, a memory or just kind of jolting them into uh, wondering, you know, is that what happened to my mum? I mean, the very same thing happened to me when I started investigating this back in 2020. It was only when I, I was talking about it one day to someone that... Um, it suddenly dawned on me that, that my, my own mother had been euthanized. So um, back in, in, in 2009, and I'd actually sat there and watched them do it. And then a lot of things fell into place for me because after my mum died, I had a lot of dreams where she was really angry with me and um, I couldn't make sense of them at all. And um, now it all makes sense, you know, because I sat there like an idiot watching them kill her and had no idea what was happening until like you know 13 years later so i completely empathize with people who have had that happen to their loved ones and weren't able to do anything about it because they just didn't know had no idea it wouldn't cross their minds that that um the people who are supposed to be caring for our loved ones are actually putting them to death you know executing them so it's a very hard thing to come to terms with and i must say i'd say 99% of my group feel terrible guilt um, even if they did know uh, about this whole uh, euthanasia program, which has uh, uh, been uh, labelled, well, NG163 is the NICE guideline uh, for the COVID uh, period, which more or less instructed medics to um, euthanise people coming in with uh, respiratory issues, especially the elderly. Yeah, it's it's just really, really shocking. And, and people feel guilt because, number one, they, they didn't do anything, or number two, because they didn't know. But they do feel, you know, they, there's, there's an awful uh, combination of feelings that these people are going through. There's the guilt, there's the, the grief, and there's this feeling of not being able to grieve properly because, as with any family members of people who've been murdered you know until you get justice you can't you can't grieve it's you're just in this horrible state of limbo and that's where most of the people in my group are it's good to have the group because they're able to support each other and they're all at varying stages of their journey and many have gone legal now but as you probably know these things can can take years to reach any kind of conclusion and you have to practically give up your life to it because it becomes all-consuming, 24-7 work, you know, and a lot of people don't have the time, energy or inclination or the money to be able to do that. And we can also add to that that the NHS runs a very staunch system with its own legal teams where, where I know from one uh, legally trained professional in particular that their key tactic is to drag the case out for as long as possible yeah if people are going down a compensation route which 
a lot of people do, not not all of the families. Um, but the NHS drags the case out to the point where, of course, it's it's using up financial resources of whoever's making the claim. Yeah. But also it simply exhausts the family. They're, vul they're vulnerable in the first place because they've gone through the trauma of the loss of their yeah. loved one. And the NHS plays on that by dragging it out, wearing them down until many of them actually give up or... Um, they end up running out of time. I think it's three years to make a compensation claim against the NHS. So the the NHS always tries to drive those claims to the to the to the end of that three year window. Well, there's a time limit uh, of um, making the claim uh, if you're suing for medical negligence, and from the, the I think it's from the date of the the death. That's three years for medical negligence. But if you're going in accuse, accusing um, them of murder or uh, manslaughter or corporate manslaughter even, then there is no time limit on that. But it's very, very difficult to get, as I've found from, from the members of the group who've tried, uh, the police aren't interested. I mean, when I was making um, the documentary A Good Death with Iconic Media back in 2021, which was um, based on, on this subject, I was interviewing a lot of people, but um, we we found that you know if you if you go to the police, they're just not interested. My 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 dad um, died, for for want of a better word, I believe he was um, killed by paramedics back in September 2021 when I was actually making that film, and I went to the police because um, he was alive one minute and dead the next after paramedics had been to his house and injected him with something and lied about it. And the police, they kind of feign interest to start with. And then as the months go by, you just don't really hear from them. From them. And in my case, after eight months, they got back to me and said, oh, we're closing the case. Uh, the, the investigation has been concluded and basically there's nothing to see here. And I said, well, what investigation? You haven't done any investigating. I asked them, have, you, have they spoken to my dad's GP? Have they spoken to the paramedics? Have they spoken to the people that were there when, when my dad died and they hadn't, but they just said, sorry, you know, if you want to make a complaint about us, here's the number and you've got, you know, a certain time limit to do that. And I was so uh, distressed at the time, you know, I missed the, the deadline for the, for the complaint. And then I just thought, you know, I know from talking to other people who are further down the line with their um, legal um, cases than, than, than I ever got that, um, that it, it, it was going to take a long time and a lot of energy. And I thought, shall I spend that time and energy on on helping myself and, and, and getting my dad's death investigated? Or shall I put that time and energy into other people, you know, a, a group, a large group of other people, which might be more helpful and, you know, writing about it and um, making films. And so I decided on the latter because... I just felt more useful doing that. And to be honest, I, I've never actually really, uh, it's not quite sunk in, you know, about what happened to my dad. I haven't given myself any time to think about it because it's it's so horrendous. And once you do start going down that path, like I said, it becomes full time. You don't, don't have the time or energy for anything else. You know, most of the people in my group, they barely sleep, you know. They suffer from anxiety, depression and insomnia. And, you know, a lot of them are still messaging each other at three, four in the morning, you know, because they, they can't sleep. And this is the thing that, that the evil people who orchestrated these this this democide, they do not realise the knock-on ripple effect that it has on everyone around the person that's euthanised. It's not just the end of that person's life. It can totally destroy the lives of, of family members and friends and um, you know, colleagues, and it's uh, absolutely devastating. And so it's not just you know the thousands and thousands of individuals that were exterminated. It's it's you know times ten, times twenty. You know because so many other people's lives are destroyed in the process. It's um, it's absolutely absolutely heartbreaking. For me, this is also an emotive subject because i i go back to the time when my um 
mother-in-law uh, died under very strange circumstances in, in uh, Derriford Hospital in Plymouth. And her story was that she'd had a, she'd had a successful heart operation and uh, was recovering from that, but then had a, a mild stroke and ended up back in hospital. And uh, family were visiting her and she was uh, making progress, um, albeit that um, mm. uh, uh, she still didn't have a proper swallowing reflex. And ultimately she, she was being fed um, by tube. Um, but I went in to see her one day and there was just a funny atmosphere on the ward and and uh, one of the nurses said that she was now very ill and I said, what does that mean? And I didn't get a straight response. I ended up talking to one of the uh, doctors who was actually a young RAF doctor, a lady, and um, I found her very evasive. Yeah. The story that emerged was that my, my mother-in-law was fed into her lung and, um, and you know, from that point on, she, she was probably going to die. But it, that was clear negligence. And, and then it emerged that the hospital yeah. didn't actually know what staff were on the ward or who had been nearer. And the police got involved. And I just want to reinforce your point that... I was absolutely astonished at how lacklustre the police were, even to one of the meetings that the family had with Devon and Cornwall Police, when I said, well, have you spoken to the chief executive? Because there, there's, there was other issues around the management of the hospital. And he he, he said, no. I, the policeman said, I, no, I haven't been able to get an appointment yet. And I, I said to him, but you're dealing with somebody who's died and you're waiting for an appointment with the chief executive i was i was aghast and what i'll say is that the family uh, my family went through the full emotions of losing somebody um, through crass negligence um it went to um uh, oh my goodness what's the word uh um what, what is it when inquest yes it went to inquest thank you uh, but yeah. we were the first family to ever force a jury inquest into a, an NHS death. It did get a tiny, tiny paragraph in the Telegraph. Um, but ultimately, at that jury inquest, a consultant, who I think was a very good man, was the first person from that hospital that actually apologised to us for what had happened. And that made a big impact on certain members of the family. But uh, not to take the time away from you, I just want to say I've been through it. I I know the heartache. I saw the pain um, on other family members who were closer to that relative, and um, it the cover up, the lies, uh, the dragging of the time, yeah. the inefficiency of the police. I've I've seen it. I've experienced it. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah very sorry to hear. Um... Of, of your loss of your, your mother-in-law, it's absolutely um, tragic. I've heard um, so so many stories now, but it's like each one is more shocking than, than the last. You know, a recent one, um, a lady's father was killed in hospital. In fact, I was just going to mention the tweet. I did do a tweet about that. She managed to take a photo of him being euthanized, um, being, he was, overdosed with insulin and they had no reason to give him insulin at all he wasn't diabetic uh never had been and um they gave him a massive amount of uh, insulin and then on the death certificate they put that he died of diabetes um now she's had an inquest and it's there's so many cover-ups going on they've they they're refusing to do a, a toxicology report um on him uh, they're just trying to cl close it down you know and this is what's happening they all close ranks the police the nhs the coroners the courts um they all the pathologists you know they're all covering for each other because you know the pathologists who are supposed to be you know objective and the coroners you know i mean coroners are lawyers generally but pathologists are doctors and they're they're all 
covering up for each other's mistakes because once one gets in, uncovered, they all get uncovered. Yeah, it, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's not. I've heard far too many stories now. And like I was saying to you on the phone earlier today, um, when I was putting out these tweets, you know, three years ago, I wasn't getting much of a response apart from, oh, you know, tinfoil happened nutter you know um uh, but but now i put up one of these tweets that first one got um nearly seven hundred thousand views this week and the other one is is edging towards that as well i think it was like 500 last time i looked five hundred thousand views and not only are people reading these stories now they're actually telling their own stories in the, in the comments so after each of these tweets now there are a hundred or more stories saying this happened to my mother this happened to my sister you know and and everyone's telling their own stories people are really waking up to what's going on but one of the unintended consequences on my part anyway is that it's frightening people and it's making them not want to go into hospital which is totally understandable or into a care home because they think they're going to be killed you know especially people who are, who are elderly because there is a huge discrimination against the elderly there's a frailty score and if you're 80 or above you immediately get five points i think i think to be put on a as i call them a death pathway the nhs call them care pathways end of life care pathway you only have to score about eight or something but you automatically score five even if you're the healthiest fittest 80 year old in the world you'll still get a high score because of your age that is total age discrimination if you've got comorbidities you'll get extra points added on as well so a comorbidity could be you know asthma or, or something quite mild you know and you'll get points for that and so it's very easy to put people on these pathways on these death pathways and as i said before you know um the the, the protocol they brought in 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 2020 is called uh ng163 um it was uh put together and Matt Hancock, who was the, the health secretary back then, showed it to a panel of doctors and um, professors who all said that this was a dangerous uh, protocol and people should not be put on it because um, they could die. And they wrote a letter to the British Medical Journal about it, which you can still find. Um, I've got a link to it if anyone wants it, um, stating all this. Uh, but Matt Hancock ignored all that and implemented NG163 anyway. NG163 is identical to the Liverpool Care Pathway, which was abolished back in 2014 for being barbaric and inhumane. And um, NG163 was identical. So it involved a person coming to hospital with, say, a chest infection and then putting them on this COVID death pathway, NG163, um, and this involved withdrawal of essential medications. So say you're on heart medication or diabetes medication or even antidepressants, all that gets removed. Then they start giving you midazolam and morphine or a benzodiazepine and an opioid, which should never, ever be used together because that depresses the respiratory system. So why you'd give that to people with respiratory issues, I do not know. Well, there's only one reason. And then they uh, starve and dehydrate the person. So no food and no fluids yes put all that together it kills it kills a person it, it just kills them and and that's what's been going on ng163 was replaced in march 2021 by ng191 which just slightly changed the the medications there were still benzodiazepines and opioids being used together but they were more um different different um trade names like lorazepam and um fentanyl um, but there were still the same categories of drugs being used together. The, the, the same drugs that are used on death row in um, certain American states or that have even been banned in certain American states because they were deemed to be prolonged torture, you know, giving these drugs to, to murderers and rapists. Yet they, here they were administering them, doling them out to our loved ones in care homes and hospitals um, without a second thought. You've used, you know, early on, you used the word murder. Yeah. And you've used the word democide. Yeah. And you're now comparing a policy for tr treatment or end of end of uh, life pathway. Yeah. Where people are, are being killed in a way equivalent to people being executed in the US. And this is absolutely true because the same drugs are being used. You've now experienced 
this stuff in, in your own life and you've got all these people coming forward. What are we dealing with? I, I'm, I'm going to be a bit, um, let's put in a naive rock in the pond. Yeah. Are we dealing with people who are incompetent and they've come up with a policy which they think is good, but actually it's not a really good policy and they're generally incompetent? Or are we actually dealing with people, and that means people in power, in government, and associated people in the NHS and these other organisations like the coroner, um, the police even, are we dealing with a regime which is deliberately setting out to kill elderly people? Which is it? Absolutely. It's a concerted effort. And the more you look into it, the more you see that that is the case. It's a depopulation agenda. You know, people say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. Look at all the conspiracy theories that have actually come to pass in the last couple of years. And this is another one. So it's all about money. It's all about control. You know, they want there's so many reasons to get rid of the elderly in particular from their point of view, from from the government's point of view. It's a massive money saving exercise. In fact, back in um, I think it was a couple of well, maybe a year. No, back in 2020, I remember reading a newspaper article. It was a BBC article and it was kind of boasting almost um, or celebrating the fact that covid was going to kill off a lot of elderly people and the government was going to save loads of money now i was talking to you earlier about trying to find articles that i remember reading and then not being available anymore but that one is still available i did manage to find that one but um a lot a lot of the stuff like i was saying earlier you think i'm just going to go and check the article that i read back in 2020 and it's completely disappeared from the internet and it's like i said to you they're not they're not only rewriting history they're erasing information it's gaslighting the public so it's, so you end up thinking did i imagine that news story you know and then you have to check with other people to make sure that you've not gone mad you know a lot of people are noticing this and and um yeah and so just going back to what we're saying i do think it's a deliberate attempt to save money there's other reasons why they don't want elderly people to be around because elderly people remember stuff you know they remember what it used to be like you know before before all these restrictions have been um, put in place, before this curtailing of our freedom of speech and expression, you know, and they, they don't want the young people hearing about this, you know, because they're, they're in the business of keeping people down, controlling them, making sure that, you know, they don't cause too many problems for, 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 the, for the, the elite, as people tend to call them. Yeah, they're, they're seen as, as, as useless uh, feeders, you know, they're taking up um, money, they're taking up resources, they want to get rid of them. They're attacking us from all angles. So it's not just the killing off of the elderly, you know, they're promoting all these uh, various agendas that actually, when it what it boils down to is that these people, the agendas, who, who are part of these agendas, aren't going to be uh, reproducing. So, you know, they're pushing the transgender agenda, uh, the, the gay agenda, um, and it's all for nefarious reasons you know it, it's not all bright colors and, and rainbows and carnivals you know this is quite sinister because of course transgender and gay people can adopt but they're not going to be naturally reproducing within their relationships and the same goes for all the stuff that that's being fed to young people you know um in the form of vaccinations or or, or food alcohol cigarettes you know uh these things are affecting fertility. So the fertility rate has dropped um, considerably over the last uh, couple of decades. And now with these other um, medications, in particular the, um, the COVID jabs that were brought in in 2021, these are going to be affecting uh, not just fertility, but also the rate of miscarriages, stillbirths, all these are going up. So it looks like when you when you go down that rabbit hole that they are actually coming at us from all angles to stop the population expanding. Uh, the smaller the population, the easier they are to control. In the same way, the more fearful the population, the easier they are to control because they're looking for a saviour. So there's, there's so many different aspects to it. But I would say that, yes, definitely um, the bringing in 
or the bringing back of the Liverpool Care Pathway, which has never gone away because it was supposed to be banned in 2014. But I've spoken to loads of people whose loved ones were euthanized between 2014 and 2020 when it was reintroduced as NG163. You know, it's never gone away. And so, and, and it's deliberate. It's most definitely deliberate. There is some incompetence, there is some negligence, but most of it is deliberate. Now, also in, in NG163, there was a line I wish I had it in front of me now, but there's a line in it that that, that is um, addressing the people who are administering the, uh, the the protocol, administering the drugs. It, that basically say, look, you probably know, uh, dear nurse, you know that these drugs used together will cause respiratory um, depression, will cause respiratory depressed. But if you uh, distress, but if you notice the patient, the patient's breathing being affected uh, detrimentally. Don't worry about it. Just carry on. Uh, and this, this is probably one of the most shocking lines that I've seen in, in a protocol. It's basically telling them to ignore what they know, ignore what they see, just carry on administering the drugs and and drug the person to death, you know, wh whether they're showing signs of distress or not. And I, I want to respond to that because uh, I'm fascinated by what you say. I, I don't have any trouble. Um, believing what you say, that this is premeditated and we've got a very cold, calculating, callous regime that's that's doing this, particularly to um, to elderly people. We, we know from speaking to people inside the NHS that there are people inside the NHS who have been concerned at what's been happening. But they're saying when we tried to do something about it, we were we were subjected to huge pressure by the by the senior managers so there are the good people in the nhs who are trying to do things but the other bit which i find very scary is we've got other people who just go along with the policy that they're being given where they seem to have completely lost all human compassion and understanding they are just following through yeah. on these non-care patterns pathways it and we know that inside the nhs itself that they're using applied behavioral psychology yeah. in the training this has been going on for years and to me it makes complete sense that when staff are trained in these procedures they're going to use this applied psychology as well where am i getting to the fact that people are being trained in a way which takes away their normal feelings of compassion and it is making them do things which if they were in their right sense of mind their their own um judgment and moral values would stop them doing it yeah i'm i'm, I'm starting to believe and this is something i want to look into a bit more that people were hired they're like these nurses these medics were brought in in 2020, they were hired assassins. They were they were hired specifically to do this job. They were paid extra money. Um, this is what I'm hearing. I haven't looked into it enough yet to say that it's 100% true, but the truth resonates with me. And, and the more I hear about this, it's like, yes, because a, your normal nurse or doctor would not be able to do this. They would not. So they've brought in these mercenaries, basically, and I reckon they brought them in, shipped them in from I don't know where, maybe abroad, I don't know, or from various agencies where these people who aren't like normal nurses, that they're, 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 they're killers. Um, and they've brought them in. They've got no empathy. They've got no sympathy. They've got no um, real um, normal feelings that your average nurse would have. Because when I first started investigating um, uh, for a good death, I interviewed lots and lots of people separately and they were all saying the same thing. So um, the film naturally fell into these sort of segments, these these chapters, if you like. And one of them was, uh, one of the chapters was uh, Cruel Nurses. Um, everyone I spoke to said the nurses were strange. They wouldn't look you in the eye. Uh, they were unnaturally cruel. They'd say really nasty things that would distress people, you know very cold and robotic was another word that was used quite a lot so it was like who who are these um you know robo nurses were they brought in from somewhere else you know and and my feeling is when i when i just instinctively uh, intuitively think about it 
it makes sense that they would have brought these these people in to do this job and then for them to leave. So I reckon that that is possibly what's happened. Dominic Cummings put out a really mysterious tweet back in 2020. It was almost as if he was writing in code. I'll have to find that for you and send it, um, where he's alluding to this, but in this really strange language. With I'll have to show it to you. I've tried deciphering it with a friend, and we think we know what he's saying, and I th think it's something along those lines. These people knew what was going on. Dominic Cummings knows what's going on. Matt Hancock obviously knows what's going on. Luke Evans knows what's going on. It was quite interesting in the uh, excess death debate in Parliament last week when Andrew Bridgen, um, who has been helping our group quite a lot with, um, with, with, with trying to you know, get to the bottom of what's been going on, he actually mentioned it briefly that some of the ex excess deaths were caused possibly by midazolam and morphine being um, administered in large amounts. I don't think he used the word euthanasia. Luke Evans, who actually spoke to Matt Hancock about bringing in that huge order of midazolam back in 2020, um, April 2020, he was there at the excess deaths debate and he looked very, very uncomfortable. In fact, we zoomed in on his face and caught a picture and his expression was one of sheer terror. Like he, he's like, oh my God, you know, they're, they're onto me sort of thing. So the rest of the time he was on his phone. And from what I've heard from uh, the uh, thousands of uh, Twitter followers that I've had, he's deleting people. He's blocking people left, right and centre. Anyone who mentions Medazolam, they get blocked. So thousands and thousands of my followers have all been blocked by Luke Evans because they've dared to ask him questions. So, it, it you know, I think, you know, they realise now that people are onto them and we're not going to let it we're not going to let it go. They've got to be held accountable and, accountable and brought to justice for what they've done. Yes, and, and I'm going to say in doing this, using the right words, um, magnifies the power of those words. So you, you've talked about murder, you've talked about democide, you've talked about the killing off of elderly people. These very direct words are, very, in my opinion, very powerful at cutting through the nonsense and making i'll say these people because there's there's a number of people i think spread through government and through the nhs making them fully aware that they are now being seen and their policies are being understood for what they really are which is not some care caring policy in order to save the nation from covid these are these are malicious and very callous policies to kill off elderly people under the cover of their COVID pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how these guidelines ever got implemented. Like I said, you know, doctors and professors were were telling the politicians, no, no, you can't use this. And yet they, their views were overridden and these policies and these protocols were put into place Regardless, I just wanted to add as well that I've written an article recently, it should be out in this month's edition of The Light Paper, about um, how this, uh, on that very subject, you know, about how Hancock ignored the advice of doctors and, and professors when it came to this particular guideline in G163. And in the course of this, we had to contact uh, Matt Hancock's office to get some uh, comments, hopefully, from him. And there was a lot of toing and froing and and the asking of questions and we didn't speak to Matt Hancock directly but to his assistant I can't remember his name now Mark something and this was on November the 28th and 29th we were having these conversations and then I was just um, rechecking the guidelines like I do regularly just to see if there's been any updates and I noticed on November the 30th there was an update to NG191 NG191 is renamed um, the renamed version of uh, NG163. And there had been an update on November the 30th saying that the recommendation for the use of midazolam and morphine had now been withdrawn from that particular guideline. So I was thinking, well, what's that about? If they've withdrawn it, what reason, what's the reason for the, the withdrawal? And also... You know, have they realised that they've they've made a mistake and that wasn't the right pro protocol to use? And if if that's the case, 
what about all the people they've used it on? But it was just very quietly changed, this 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 um, guideline, very quietly changed. You can see it if you look it up, and you just, just Google NG191, and you'll be able to see that the recent update. But I found that really, really shocking. You know, it's not been announced anywhere. But a lot of people are going, oh, that's brilliant. They're not using it anymore. And it's like, well, they still are. But the, the, but the recommendation has been has been withdrawn, but it's still going on. Yes, and let, let's let's just reinforce for maybe somebody who's who's new to this very hard topic that that within the is it the green book the NHS green book is that the right place where it has specifically said uh, for for actually a great number of years that you shouldn't be combining opioid drugs and what 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 was the other one so uh, benzodiazepines and and and, um, and opioids it should never be used together i mean midazolam has its place and benzodiazepines have their place they're, they're great for minor surgeries they're good for severe epilepsy um in in the right doses but they're not to be used on on people willy-nilly who come into hospital with their various um you know illnesses and and then be used in the huge amounts that they have been used in you wouldn't believe the amounts now because that that a lot of people that i know in my group have got hold of the medical records and, and the mar charts so they can see just how much their loved ones were overdosed absolutely absolutely shocking some hundreds of milligrams of these drugs yes and it was in many cases it was overdosed because they were given a greater dose than the NHS handbooks permitted that particular, you know, stated that that drug should be limited to. They gave them more than that. Yeah, they were also giving giving these drugs, which are supposed to be like, they say midazolam can be used for agitation. Now, there's a very, diff, there's a big difference between terminal agitation, which is actually a condition, to someone who's just, um, having a bit of a moan and, and, and wriggling about you know that's not terminal but they, they were giving it for any reason whatsoever in massive doses in some cases i mean 2.5 milligrams of midazolam intravenously can kill a frail small elderly person um but they were giving these people 40 60 100 milligrams you know administered um continuously um in many cases via a syringe driver so the only outcome to that is that the person will die. They're being slowly drugged to death. I saw it happen to my own mother. And as I said, only realized many, many years later what had happened. When she actually stopped breathing, I remember saying to the nurse that came in, what happened? And they said, oh, well, she died. And I said, well, I know that, but why? You know, what? I didn't, I could not get my head around it, not because of the fact that she died but the fact that it didn't make any sense and I kept I asked the doctor what happened and she said oh well she stopped breathing and I said but why did she stop breathing I don't understand she was breathing one minute and not breathing the next what what made her stop breathing and the doctor said oh that's just how it happens when when someone's ill with cancer you know um and I said what about her brain and she and the doctor said yes that stopped working as well and I said how do you know I was driving this doctor mad. I was asking her so many questions because it just did not make sense to sit there and witness that. Um, and the same for the other people I've spoken to who have witnessed it. It doesn't make sense, if, especially if you, if you have no idea about the drugs, which I didn't at the time. But I was just, it was constantly, you know, going around in my head. How, what happened? Why did she stop breathing? But the reason she stopped breathing is because she was um, given drugs that were, were intended to stop her breathing um she was in a hospice and euthanasia happens in hospices every day oh the other thing i wanted to mention about the word euthanasia because you're saying you know how i use the word murder you know killing what's a what a lot of people think euthanasia is voluntary euthanasia you know where people decide that they want to be euthanized and they pop over to you know switzerland and and have a nice have a good death as it's called it's not a good death it's a hideous death you just look still on the outside because of the drugs that they give you to sedate you um but it's um it, it's not it's not a good death at all but the, the the i don't know why there is a word euthanasia because euthanasia involuntary euthanasia which is what has been happening over the last uh, well for a long time but it has been really ramped up in the last four years 
um, involuntary euthanasia is murder. I don't know why it's even called involuntary euthanasia. What it's saying is you're killing someone without them wanting to be killed. That's murder, isn't it? There's no other word for it. So in, in my group, we have no hesitation in using the words um, murder, killing, because that's what it is. You know, involuntary euthanasia is just a euphemism, sugarcoating, you know, for, for murder. On this, particularly since you've got to this point, I, I just want to say to you, you've been, I mean, you're very active with the group. You've been active, active at parliamentary level. You've produced um, a good death, which clearly made a huge impact. You've also been engaging with various people from the legacy, the mainstream media. We've got to use that term. What response have you got from people that you've spoken to in the in the in the wider media? Well, I have now contacted over a hundred um, editors and staff journalists with this story. Um, I first approached them in March 2021 and have not stopped pitching the story to them. They would probably say pestering them. The usual re um, response is nothing. Absolute tumbleweed. Even editors that I've dealt with and have good relationships with for years mention that subject and they don't reply. But if, if I pitch another story about something a little bit more innocuous, they'll reply to that. So it's almost like they've been not to engage with anyone who mentions these words. Um, I went in you know, full steam ahead at the start using the word euthanasia, saying, you know, killings, murders. Um, learned very quickly that any emails with those words in would be would be totally ignored. So I tried not using those words so much. Also, the medazolam word, they, that they wouldn't respond to that at all. So um, I did get a, a few responses. I had two meetings, I think I told you in our last interview, one with the news editor of the Daily Mail, one with the um, then medical editor of the Mail on Sunday, two face-to-face -face meetings, long meetings. Um, and, um, you know, they were they were gobsmacked. They were, they were saying, this has got to be headline news. It's massive. And, um, and then as the weeks went by, their interest seemed to wane and they just got quieter and quieter until one of them doesn't doesn't speak to me at all now. He actually contacted some of the, the, the people in my group and spoke to them. And he just said to me, oh, there's not enough evidence, sorry, and just left it. The other guy just said, oh, I've passed it on to someone else. They'll be in touch. And they never were. Yeah, even recently I've sent I've sent the pitch out again saying, look, it's still happening, you know, and you've all got blood of your blood on your hands now. You're all complicit because if you'd run this story, Four years ago, thousands of people's lives could possibly have been saved, but you didn't run the story, and these people are now dead, and they don't like it when you say that. They don't like me much. You know, one editor said I'm a bit rude. I'm not rude. I'm just direct. I don't. I don't mince my words. But a lot of these editors seem to take it personally if you're direct and think and, and if they think you're giving them a hard time. Well, I am actually giving them a bit of a hard time because they need to you know stand up and be counted you know i've i've had public fallings out on twitter with uh, um various people as well just because i'm asking them why aren't you doing anything about this a lot of them say well we can't you know we're we're kind of we're not allowed basically um but they won't go into any more detail than that they just say things like oh you know i don't have the power to do that neil oliver did speak out after uh, much um haranguing from various people on social media. He did do a, a brief uh, program on Medazolam. He had um, Andrew Bridgen on and uh, a woman that I know who lost her father to euthanasia. I think he, he did a good, a good job, um, you know, considering that he probably doesn't know the subject, you know, as well as, uh, as many of us do, but he did do a good job. But the weird thing was that program was aired at exactly the same time as the Russell Brand documentary was aired on Channel 4. So I don't think many people actually saw it, but I think it is available still. Right. Well, that's that's a really good point. I think we, we must dig that one out. The other thing I, I will say is it's clear that Neil Oliver um, has gone through a pretty uh, amazing waking up progress. Yeah. Um, so I'll say to be fair to him, he started to see things which he wasn't happy with and 
and he's dipped, he dipped a toe in the water and then it's got deeper and deeper and deeper and murkier. Yeah, I mean, I think he's done he's done quite a, a good job in, in, in putting his neck on the line uh, where other people haven't. But with GB News, I just don't I just don't know about them. You know, they, they were launched in um, in, in 2020 as a kind of alternative news channel, but they're, they're more mainstream than the mainstream now. Um, and I think with Neil Oliver, I don't know him personally, but from what I can gather, I think he is actually willing to risk losing his job because he knows that, that it's important to speak out on certain issues. And it's like he's spoken out on, on one thing and it's like, oh, have I lost my job yet? No, okay, I'll speak out on this. And for him to speak out on on the euthanasia issue was pretty brave of him, actually. And I, I think I think he's still probably wondering whether he's going to lose his job um, or not. But at least he's willing to risk it. You know, a lot of us, well, not a lot of us, a few of us um, journalists have lost everything in the last three years for speaking out. You know, but other journalists aren't willing to do that. They 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 they're saying. Oh, you know, I've got a family, I've got a mortgage. Well, you know, I've got rent to pay, I've got bills to pay. Well, we all have, you know. But some of us are willing to to risk all that because the truth is more important than money. Yeah, this comes down to courage—the courage to actually stand up and speak out. And it has to be said that many people are failing in this respect. They simply don't have the guts to do it. I don't think it. I don't think it is to do with courage because you know pe some people have said to me, "Oh, you're really brave," and it's like, well, I'm not. I'm just doing what any normal person would do. You know. <laughs> you can respond like that, and it's a very modest response. But unfortunately, there's a there's a lot of evidence that you know if you have a group of people and some serious action needs to be taken out of the group, it will only be one or two of them that step forward to put themselves in danger and 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 try and take action most people are the it sounds it sounds a bit hard and a bit crass but most people are the sheep and they will just herd together and then it's only one or two that are going to stand up i am a bit harsh on people because um i would be prepared to live in a tent on the side of the motorway as long as i'm telling the truth do you know what I mean? Like nothing is more important than that. But most people aren't, and they can't. And I under I do understand that. So I'm a bit harsh on them. I'm harsh on the editors at the papers because they'd rather sit there, you know, um, publishing, writing propaganda and lies because they don't want to lose their job. Well, it's only a job. Get another job. You know, if you lose that job, get another job. If you lose your house, you know, go and live somewhere else. If, you know. But I do understand when people have got maybe young children and stuff and that they're worried but it's this you know the way we're all kept in this fear and and on this weird little treadmill that you know and this this fear of if you lose your job or your house or or whatever you know that's the end of the world i mean i was speaking to a man the other day who's who lost everything you know because he's speaking the truth i'm just reading his book actually it's called charles foxtrot and the book's called red pilling in a clown world very good and get it on amazon I said I'd, I'd give it a mention if I could. Yeah, you know, some people have lost their homes, they've lost their their relationships, they've lost their their friends, um, and their jobs. But then they're still speaking out and they're still telling the truth. I think Neil Oliver is one of those people. I think he is willing to risk that. I, I think that as well. I absolutely think. And that. if he loses his job, he'll get another job. He's Neil Oliver, you know. <laughs> yes, I just add that. When, when you sort of say, you know, what is GB News? If, if you look behind GB News, I think it's called the Luminous Trust, if I've got that name slightly yeah. wrong, but there is a trust behind GB News. And the moment you start looking at that, that trust, you're into Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yeah, exactly. And then you have to question. I mean, I think um, what made me start questioning them quite early on is when, for want of a better word, they were they were kind of very um, interested in the royals and they were almost like, um, you know, like praising them and admiring them. And I was like, where's this come from? I wasn't expecting GB News to be like this, you know. And I, that made me very suspicious. And then since then, and speaking to some of the presenters, I speak, I've spoken to um, Calvin Robinson quite a lot. I've been trying to speak to Bev Turner. She blocked me on um, 
blocked me on Twitter, but she's unblocked me now, which is very nice. It's the first unblocking I've ever had. So thank you to Bev for unblocking me. My conversation with her basically was just saying, why aren't you saying anything? And she was, she was saying, I don't have the power to do that. And, I, you know, then my argument would be with these people, then go and work for another company. Why are you working for a company that is censoring you? How can you do that? You know, how can you see that? Like, she actually said to me in a private message, I know you're probably on the right side of history. And I'm like thinking, well, don't you want to be? She seems like a nice person, you know. She speaks out as much as she is able. And also, they talk. They talk in in a in a sort of detached way, as if what's happening isn't affecting or will not affect their own families, which of course is utter nonsense. Because every family in this in this country is now at risk of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to come back on is is people in the NHS, because there are many, many good people in the NHS, and there is a lot of people in the NHS who, in, in their own way, inside their own hospitals and organisa NHS organisations, have tried to speak out. And there are many of them who've ended up resigning, leaving their jobs, or some of them have been fired because they've tried to counter this stuff. But this brings me on to the bit you mentioned quite early on, which is, you know, NHS, I am of a particular age, do I admit it? Yes, I will. I'm going to be 70 this year. And I think to myself, yeah, you, you're you now in the bracket, the danger bracket for going near the NHS. I absolutely feel this. I know there are a lot of good people in the NHS and I've met some really brave ones who've tried to speak out and protect people and warn about what's going on. But it's clear that the NHS is this vast uh, machine which has now got involved in, let's use the words, killing off elderly and vulnerable people. Um, so what is the advice that we give people about the NHS? For me, if, if I do it this way around, I'll suggest something and you can criticise or change it. But for me, I think the advice is that if you are getting older, you've got to think really carefully about why you want to go near the NHS. If you if you believe that you've got a you know a medical issue and there's no other way of dealing with it than going to the NHS, then you've got to make that decision for yourself. But if you're a family and you're thinking about um, elderly family members, then the family itself needs to be thinking very carefully about grandma or granddad disappearing into the NHS. And if they do have to go into the NHS, the family should be doing everything they can to, I think, keep a 24-hour-a-day watch on those people. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I'm in the certain age bracket as well. But um, just before, before I get up to that, I just want to say that it's not just the elderly that are being euthanized. We're looking at disabled people. We're looking at, at children even. Uh, we're looking at, um, at people with mental health issues. You know, they're having these, they're going to hospital with it. DNRs get put on them, whether they like it or not, whether the family likes it or not. Um, doctors are supposed to discuss DNRs with the family. They invariably don't. If they do, they can, can still override them. They can say do you want a dnr no thanks and they still just score it out on on the um on the dnr form saying uh, um overridden by a consultant and the dnr gets put in place anyway so we've got all this going on as well in my group there are 13 people whose loved ones were murdered in hospitals and care homes who are under the age of 65 so the youngest being 17 got one of 28 uh, a lady um whose daughter of 21 was euthanized only in last november it's absolutely horrendous but it is mainly the elderly i think they're probably easier to kill i don't i don't know what what the thinking behind it is i also don't want to be responsible for putting people off going into hospital or or, or um you know moving into care homes because there are many many people who, who have gone into hospital and come out and have nothing but praise for you know uh, what what they've seen and and the um, care they've been given, so it, it's it's I can't see a, a pattern to it. I've been looking for, for nearly four years now to see what the pattern is. Um, I've noticed that guidelines and the, these killings don't seem to happen in private hospitals. So it 
is to do with the NHS. Um, I have noticed that it doesn't seem to happen to many, well, celebrities, politicians, although I do think that Joan Rivers was possibly um, euthanized for speaking out about Obama. But um, that's another story. I mean, a, a lot of what goes on behind closed doors, and, and as we know, the doors were closed so often uh, during the, the pandemic that people had no one, um, uh, no nobody knew what was going on. Uh, there were no witnesses. Uh, the people who were behind the closed doors, the patients, the the, the residents, uh, had no one to protect them, um, no one to advocate for them. So you know, I think a lot more went on than than we'll ever know. And a lot of people who've been told that their loved ones died of COVID or they died of this or that or pneumonia, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. And I think people are waking up to this. And I wish they'd woken up to it earlier, but it's good that they're waking up to it now. And there's got to be there's got to be some kind of revolt you know against what's happening we can't just continue to allow this to happen and people were allowing it i was having a discussion on twitter last night people were allowing it but they're they're, they're, they're now thinking about um standing up to it it's people standing up to it but it's also people caring for one another this is one of the most critical things that we're all being attacked families are being attacked and people really need to be standing up for one another because if we don't protect one another, um, ultimately it comes for us. And if if you're on your own and you're isolated, you're very, very vulnerable. So, yeah, how people react, it requires a bit of courage. It requires people to look out for one another, love one another, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, there are, there are some times, you know, you do have to go to hospital. I broke both my ankles. In April last year, I was in Malta, um, so I don't know what their protocols were. But I must say they gave me a lot of morphine for the pain, and morphine is great for pain, obviously. But they also wanted to give me midazolam at one point, and um, I just said, even though I was like, you know, stupefied by the the morphine, I was still able to say, no, 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 I'm not having that, I'm not having it. And they were like, what? What? They were surprised at my reaction, and I just lied and said I was allergic to it, and it would make me really sick, um, and they gave me ketamine instead, which was one of the worst experiences of my life. But that's another story. But um, I just wondered, you know, because, you know, I am in that age bracket myself. But like I said, it's it's not always to do with age. But I think I think if they I don't I don't know how it works. Is it an opportunistic thing? Do they think, oh, here's an elderly person come in. Let's bump them off. Or is there, there more to it than that? You know, I've heard I've heard many stories of doctors going around um stopping at the foot of patients' beds in wards, not even reading the, the, the patient's notes, not knowing the patient, and just saying, end of life, and walking to the next bed, end of life, end of life. We're going to be speaking about this again. So I, I'm going to say we, we've a lot more we could cover, but I, I think we need to uh, just come to an end for our, our discussion today. Before you go, though, tell tell the audience about your org organization where do they go to see you how do they help yeah I, I just wanted to add as well that i've made a second film which i've crowdfunded um by myself using crowdfunder it's called playing god and it's kind of a, a broader look at, at um these a democide basically over the last 50 years and it's a platform for um several people to speak out about their own personal experiences um, it's called Playing God. If anyone wants to donate to that, it's uh, a crowdfunder, Playing God, final phase. Um, the film is actually finished, um, but I need to raise funds now to, you know, to get it promoted. Um, we've got the trailer made, I need to get you know, uh, film posters made and to get it out there. And so um, if any, if any um, big platform is interested in doing a licensing uh, deal, with us i'd be interested in talking to them but also if anyone can donate just so we can um speedily get it to people's screens okay and then then you've got your own website haven't you jackie devoy well i i mainly operate through twitter my my website is a little bit um bit there um, i don't use it that much so people can get me on twitter jackie devoy one um on on twitter i'm i'm there 24 7 pretty much people can message me there as well if they want um follow me there and also i do a show um every friday night a talk show um on unity news network 
and that's Friday seven till nine. I always have um, a whole array of interesting uh, guests there. It's not always serious. It can be. My most watched show was a few weeks ago. I had three uh, very interesting doctors on, Dr. Anne McCloskey, Dr. Tech Kong and Dr. Thomas Binder. That's the most watched film. But last week's was um, pretty well viewed as well. I had um, the main guest was uh, Brad from Five Times August. So we were talking music. So, yeah, people can catch me on that. That goes out live on Twitter as well as on Rumble every Friday evening. So they, people can see me in all my glory chattering away on a Friday night if, they, if, they, if they're so inclined. OK, well, that that's excellent. So just to reinforce that, people who would like to give you some financial support, um, they can go to that crowdfunder for playing God. So we'll make sure we got all the detail in the notes under this. Um, Jackie, I, I'm going to say thank you very much for doing this because it, it was just an off the cuff and it was very kind of you to respond to me when I said, come on, let's record it. No, I'm absolutely delighted you invited me in. And also I'm looking forward to uh, coming on again and, and discussing it in more detail and maybe get some people on to tell their stories. Yes. Well, we're, we're, we're certainly going to work with you on that. And because at the end of the day, it's the personal stories, which are the are the most important things. And of course, many people um, just respond to those. Uh, somebody tells a story, it's a heartfelt testimony, and other people say, my goodness, yeah, that happened to my relative. So this is how, how we can open it up, I think. I'm going to say thank you very, very much for that uh, chat. It was it was good to speak to you again. And yeah, you too. Yeah, we'll get these other, uh, get these other events set up because people need to know about this subject. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me.